One and done. One and done. One and done. One and done. And so, I learned while researching this book that Grover Cleveland was a man of great contradictions. The only president between Andrew Jackson and Franklin Roosevelt to win the popular vote in three straight elections, but nowhere as famous as the other two. The only president to serve non-consecutive terms, who still proved the principle that first terms tend to be triumphs and second terms tend to be disasters. A man who avoided military engagements abroad, but who dispatched U.S. troops to repress domestic strikes and protests. And, in short, a fascinating subject for a biography. Before I sign your first editions of my book, Grover Cleveland, An American Life, I'll take a few questions. Yes? Who are those weirdos holding signs and chanting? Oh, they're counters. Tucker Carlson claimed on his Fox News show that the historical convention of counting Grover Cleveland as the 22nd and 24th chief executives is part of a conspiracy to inflate the number of Democratic presidents. One and done! One and done! What are they doing in the travel section? They asked the clerk where they could find books about Cleveland. They're Tucker Carlson fans. You can't expect them to know their way around a bookstore. One and done! Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 22. Grover Cleveland. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. And we have gathered again, because it is what we do at the DB Comedy. Our favorite pair of Americanists are here. Um, Mr. McRae, shout out for your, your fans. Once again, joining you from beautiful Charlotte, Michigan, I am James McRae. Uh, teacher of social studies, 7th through 12th grade for the Saranac Community Schools, and excited to be here to talk about some more obscure 19th century presidents. And yeah. <laughs> last ones. Yeah, that's right, because we're by the time we're... we're ending the century. Yeah. Ms. Doctor, but not that kind of doctor, unless you're talking about social construct doctor. Yeah, that's the only kind of useful doctor that I am. Uh, hello, Chelsea Denault, public historian. Joining you from beautiful Lansing, Michigan, East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, yeah. And from various spots in and around Chicago, Illinois. I'm Joe. I'm Paul. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. And I'm Patrick. Then, Joe, when you get down to it, isn't health just a social construct in and of itself? 
everything's a social construct. Maybe Body, bodies don't exist. Diseases aren't real. Lately, health is a philosophical construct because it's just an abstraction. And when you get to the to the idea of presidents, particularly presidents that were a president, then were not a president, then were a president again, how many times were they a president? Right? Like, again, someone who thought that time was a social construct, Grover Cleveland, right? Like, what is time? What is sequential presidencies? I'm going to do it whenever I want. That has got to be way more philosophical than Grover Cleveland ever got in his life. So, okay, Grover Cleveland, the only president to serve two non-sequential terms, was anyone else even close? Did any other president ever secure a major party nomination after having lost re-election? I believe the answer is no. But I believe you're correct. At least not as of this recording. Please, dear God, let it still be so. <laughs> oh, so Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't yeah. qualify. Well, he, he made his own party to try that to run again. My next so. Similarly, right Martin Van Buren and uh, Millard Fillmore, God love him. Um, they also ran for president again, but but you know as you know, just as Teddy did, he kind of, they kind of created their own parties or you know, found causes desperate enough to adopt them as their figureheads. Grover Cleveland was the only president until Franklin Delano Roosevelt to win the popular majority in three consecutive elections for reasons that mystify me to this day. That was alive in 1892, so. Yeah. This is a special bulletin from the DB Comedy Fact-Checking Office. Andrew Jackson was the first American to win three consecutive popular votes in the presidential elections. He won in 1824, 1828, and 1832, but lost the Electoral College vote in 1824. For more information on this story, please listen to the DB Comedy Presents the Electables episodes on John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. This has been a bulletin from the DB Comedy Fact-Checking Office. Two presidencies, Patrick! But he's one person, Sally! You don't erase the other It's giving him extra credit he doesn't deserve. That makes no sense! Patrick, Sally, I can hear you both screaming all the way down the hall. Sorry, Sorry, Miss Sandy. What is this argument about? I thought you could hear the argument. You weren't arguing. You were screaming. See? You more than anyone else. Sorry. We were discussing, <clears throat> arguing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we were screaming about... About President Grover Cleveland. Oh. Why? But we're arguing about how often he should count. Count towards... Towards how many presidents there are. Okay. So he's the only president who was president in between presidents. Right. And when you look at the lists of who was president and in what order they were president, he's listed twice. Okay. Because the education industrial complex wants to give more credit to Democrat presidents than Republicans. That's ridiculous. Sally, please. It doesn't matter how many times he was listed. One man, one president. 
And one plus one equals one? When there's only one person, yes. You're just trying to aggravate me. And he's doing a good job of it. And frankly, Miss Sandy, the way that you are trying to incarcerate us? I think you mean indoctrinate. Incarcerate us with your indoctrination of Grover Cleveland being two presidents. So help me. Sally, come here, please. Sally, I know you are frustrated about Patrick winning all the history prizes when you really deserve them. That's not what this is about! Shh, please. I know you're frustrated because you are a much, 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 much better student than he is. But let this one go. But, but he's a Grover Cleveland truther! That's crazy! If you ignore him, he will stop making those arguments. That doesn't sound right to me. Some arguments are just not worth having. I... I hate losing to him all the time! What are you losing? There's no contest, it's just the two of you yelling at each other. There will come a time when you will beat him, and people will see it, and you will finally get your comeuppance on him. Don't do it over this. It's just silly. Oh, all right. I just hate giving up. What are you doing, Patrick? I am tearing up volume two of Grover Cleveland and American Life. That is school property. Uh, You are coming with me to the principal's office. Help, help, I'm being repressed. So, James and Chelsea, can you think of another political figure who had such a rapid rise in politics in two years? He went from mayor of Buffalo, New York, which which gave America that other fine president, Millard Fillmore. He went from that to the presidency in two years. I mean, so one, I think... We should uh, hold our, you know, keep our powder dry on Buffalo a little bit, which was <laughs> a far more important city in the late 19th century than it is today. It was the gateway to the Midwest before the trains uh, <laughs> arrived. No um, to our Buffalo listeners. Yeah, Jim Kelly and uh, Josh Allen, notwithstanding. <laughs> you know, obviously, uh, Dwight Eisenhower comes to mind, you know, didn't have any political experience at all, went right to the presidency. But in terms of people who were not nationally known figures, he's probably up there. Mm-hmm. Cleveland is is kind of interesting because the the Democratic. So one, I mean, he's he's like the only Democrat from the late nineteenth century, right? <laughs> from Lincoln until Wilson, he's the only one. And so, how did this guy create a? coalition to get elected when it was pretty clear that the political system that existed at that time was weighted against Democrats winning the presidency. You know, I think he was a very kind of, I would say he was a cautious politician in some ways, in terms of he kind of rejected some of the more extreme elements that had started to kind of attract themselves to the Democratic Party. You know, if obviously the Republican Party at this point is is becoming very much the party of the status quo as any established 
political party that keeps winning elections will be, right? If if you're the party that's been in power for years and years and years, well, people are going to associate you with what's going on because you're going to be largely seen as responsible for that. And therefore, those people who are against what's going on now are going to start to look for political homes. And in the two-party system, there's going to be a temptation for the opposition party to start to welcome those people into the fold, no matter how kind of crazy they are. No one has ever called Grover Cleveland crazy. (laughs) Right. So I think Grover Cleveland's success was in rejecting those radical elements that had started to find homes in the Democratic Party as not being part of his platform and being able to put forward a platform that was broadly appealing to people who were against the existing Republican Party, but didn't scare off too many people who were going to be against some of those things. So for example, he was not a free silverite, right? And so that's kind of the silverite movement had started to attract support. He rejected that. He also rejected high tariffs, which had been a democratic standpoint for a long time. You know, I think his kind of bedrock position was being someone who was in favor of political reform and someone who was a pretty staunch fiscal conservative. In and other so words, think, he was pretty damn cheap. Well, yeah. And so he was able to kind of, I think the, the fiscal conservatism has always, from an economic standpoint, I don't know that it's really ever been that politically popular, but from a cultural standpoint, it's always been kind of a way to connect yourself to the American tradition of self-reliance, right? And so when people actually have to go to the ballot box and say, free money, yes or no, they usually say yes. They usually don't want their politicians telling them that that's what they're going to do. And so for politicians to go and say, oh yeah, we're going to, I'm going to be fiscally conservative. We're going to make people work their way up. Oftentimes I think that attracts a, a cultural impulse rather than a economic one. And then, yeah, I think that Grover Cleveland was able to, to run against what was, what had started to be seen as the widespread Republican corruption and was able to put himself in there as a reformer. Now, again, to what extent any of these people were really successful at reform is an open question. If I can throw something in, I'm the more you discuss the way Cleveland ran, especially sort of running as kind of a counter to all of these other forces, both against the party he's running and the party he's running within the, the the president that keeps getting thrown in my mind is Clinton, because that's exactly what he did to get to to get in. Particularly when you look that he got in with pluralities and you know sort of culture wars. Does that sound reasonable? I actually like that comparison because I think that like Clinton, Cleveland one had a touch of scandal associated with him, um, <laughs> but. But a scandal that almost at the time, people just couldn't get themselves to care enough about to disqualify him as a political figure. And also, I think that as someone trying to bring a party that had been in opposition back to electoral success, was able to kind of co-opt some of the messages that his opponents had had and was also able to kind of wall off the radical elements in his own party to present a political idea that was broadly appealing to a moderate group of Americans. 
Bill, so you looked like you and you appreciated the Clinton comparison as well. I did, and I think Joe's point that Clinton takes power during this really contentious moment in cultural America, right? This sense of like the first culture, I I say the first culture wars, culture wars have been going on since the beginning of America. The, but, first, the first boomer president. and Right, right. And you, you really see this fight over the use of history. One of the most iconic books from that time is Eric Foner's Who Owns History, at least for iconic books for historians. Again, this is always turning into Chelsea's book club. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have a segment later. <laughs> we, should, we need a theme song, Jeff. <laughs> Mama, where's my pot? Okay. <laughs> we'll have some sax playing too, just to... I think, as we talked about in our last episode, the late 19th century is also this time of great social and cultural upheaval, right? As America is evolving into a new iteration of itself, right? One that is so much more starkly divided economically, one that's starkly divided between rural and urban. There's these huge fluctuations that are happening in America. And maybe Grover Cleveland is like the right person for the job because he, <laughs> no one has called him crazy. <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the things that we've hopped in and out of is, you know, how badly did particular people want to be, president, particularly since we've also discovered that there are a lot of presidents that went through a kind of faux humility, really as kind of a tactic to get elected. And uh, after we get through this stretch, we're going to finally get to a president who throws that crap to the side, (laughs) Roosevelt. But before we get there... And then also get to Taft, who genuinely didn't want to be president, just kind of fell into it. So where does Cleveland fit on that uh, scale? One of Cleveland's early letters when he became president said he described the presidency as a form of martyrdom that he was willing to suffer for, on behalf of America. Oh, if you could all just see Chelsea's post right now. <laughs> wow. He was a very joyless human being, except when it came to, you know, speaking of speaking of uh, perils with Clinton, except when it came to younger women. But this they also, made him happy. But this also, like Joe said, this is something, like this is an affectation that I feel like so many presidents, especially in the 18th and 20th centuries, felt like they had to take on, especially because Washington kind of sets that precedent, right? Like he does not, he is an unwilling president who's doing it for the good of the people. Oh right? no, you must reelect me, must you? Right? <laughs> and so I I almost feel like it's requisite, especially in the, the 19th century and the 18th century for for presidents it's it's unbecoming to look like you're grabbing for the highest office in the land, right? It's so Caesar turning down the crown three times. Oh no 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 no! I couldn't possibly. <laughs> Not me? Oh, really? No, you, well, if I have to. 
at the same time, but at the same time, we have this cultural bill, you know, we really are getting to sort of Pax Americana, we've got the industrialization, we've got the rise of cities, and the corruption, and all those dirty immigrants from wherever they're from. Um, the local bosses and the local, machines. The, the rise, you know, newspapers and magazines, the rise of a media. And yet you have these sort of again, again. You so so there's weird sort of crazy cultural political bigness, but presidents can't be can't match that. One of the first presidents who I think were is known more because of scandal and running and that election i would actually argue might actually have planted the seeds of rap and hip-hop making that argument joe i mean i do remember when grandmaster flash came out with his seminal record non-consecutive <laughs> And I think Tiffany knew in Tyler too was reggae and reggae, not rap. Well, as I think we all know, and for people who don't know much about Grover Cleveland, if there's one thing they probably do know, it is that whole doggerel of Mama, where's my pa? Gone to see the president. Ha ha ha. But in my voluminous research, what I discovered is that apparently the Cleveland campaign countered that rhyme with another rhyme against his presidential opponent, and it went as follows. Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar, liar from, from the, the state, state of, of Maine. Maine. Burn this letter. Why, why don't we get this kind of good, like, rap diss tracks anymore? That is a fair question. Because That's clearly, the thing that was missing right? in 2016. DB comedy straight out of Cleveland, which I personally also am. So wait, Joe, you're from James. Cleveland? You've never mentioned it before. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh, Sandy. So are you? Well, let's go. Can we let's talk about the election then? Because we've had up until this point, we've had really savage elections with lots of charges going back and forth. My impression is that this is, I guess this was sort of handled as a gotcha, like the Blaine campaign, or it must have been released on the thought that it would do in Cleveland's campaign. And instead, it looked like it clinched it. Who would like to tell the story? Well, also, I just came across a little detail in my notes here that is gross that I wanted to let the audience know. Uh, <laughs> the The illegitimate child that he ended up adopting... Uh, and claiming as his own, he named after his wife's dad. Oh, he named well, it Oscar Folsom Cleveland. That was yeah. That was that was uh, Francis's father. Lovely, the lovely Maria Halpin chose that name for him to hedge her bets between Cleveland and his law partner, with whom she probably with both of whom she probably had affairs. What I find kind of gross is the fact that. Despite the fact that he had no legal connection to her, he figured out a way to have her institutionalized after the birth of his ch birth of her child. Oh, <laughs> but you know, credit where it's due. The people of this particular sanitarium were like, "Wait a second, this woman shouldn't be here," and then they actually let her go. 
Wow. And the child um, was sent to a child. I don't know if the child was sent to an orphanage and adopted by a respectable family around the age of five, as I recall. In Grover, Cleveland, the greatness lies in typical rather than unusual qualities. He has no endowments that thousands of men do not have. He possesses honesty, courage, firmness, independence, and common sense. But he possesses them to a degree other men do not. And I'm cute, too. Say, aren't you that waiter from Charlie's? Oh, I, I have no idea what you are talking about. Mr. President. <gasps> did you say Monster President? No, no, I did not. Oh, that is a relief. I am afraid of monsters. But, uh, sir, you're a... <clears throat> Ixnay on the Onstermay, sir. Anyway, Grover Cleveland, could you tell the audience how you became the first Democrat elected to the White House? since the outbreak of the Civil War. Oh, it had been a long time coming. There was one Republican, two Republican. What about Andrew Johnson? No, oh, we, we, we do not talk about Andrew Johnson. No, no, no. Uh, now, now, where was I? Two Republican, sir. Ah, yes. Two Republican, a three Republican, four Republican. Do we really need to do this? Oh, you have made me lose count. Oh, uh, no, let's see. There was one Republican. Five. There were five Republicans. Uh, yes, yes. <clears throat> Under the Republicans, things had gotten very bad. The tariff became very, very high. Like this. But the Democrats thought the tariff should be very, very low. Like this. See? It was high. It should be low. Yes. High. Low. Hi! I get oh. it! All right, there's nothing to get excited about. <laughs> anyway, the Republicans had no integrity, which is why everyone voted for me, Grover Cleveland, a lovable blue monster. But you just said you were... <clears throat> Ixnay! Yes, a lovable fuzzy blue monster with absolutely no scandals in my administration. No scandals, huh? <laughs> oh, Ma! Where's my paw? I'm a mommy? Mm. His opponent, the good, you know, Senator, the good Senator Blaine, he was pretty ethically compromised on his own. So, I mean, Grover was the philanderer and James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine, had the uh, letters from the, what was the Arkansas and Best Railroad Company where he, you know, done, did them some favors and one of the letters that So he had letter. a whitewater thing going on? Wow. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a pretty good analogy, although I think the letters were a little bit dirtier and he <laughs> dealed with them, dealt with them more precisely. Dealed is not a word, kids. A little more melodramatically by brandishing them in public and saying that they did not affect his, you know, candidacy at all. This is, you know, before Rutherford B. Hayes stole his nomination. God knows there's a yellow press and yellow journals. I mean, people first discounted the rumors of Grover's 
legitimate child because it appeared in uh, it appeared in a like a tabloid style press. But then, I believe a Boston, a respectable Boston newspaper interviewed a Buffalo Baptist minister. Grover, of course, was a Presbyterian. I'm sure you all knew that. <laughs> who talked about? Who talked about? You know how mar- how married women were afraid of being in a room with Grover Cleveland, and he was known for his drunkenness and his lechery. But also because he was, I think, the until like the first bachelor president since Buchanan, and we all know about Buchanan, don't we? I don't think those rumors ever attached to Grover. Yeah, no. well, he uh, he's the he is the second. Uh, bachelor president, like Joe said, but he's he's the first one who got married while he was in the White House. Um, um, well, no, the, the first one to get married to get married in the White House. So, uh... this is a special bulletin from the DB Comedy Fact Checking Office. John Tyler was the first president to be married in office in 1844. He married his second wife, Julia during his term. This has been a bulletin from the DB Comedy Fact-Checking Office. The first wife, Francis, uh, while he was actually in the in the Blue Room, uh, which might come up when we're talking about Benjamin Harrison, also kind of weirdly may have raised her a little bit. Yeah, she he was, was, what, he was the executor years, years of, his junior or something like that. Yeah, he was the executive he was the executor of her father's state. He was essentially and, her guardian since the age yeah. of eleven, so this is getting really Freudian. Yeah. But very it's okay because it's Woody the nineteenth century. Yeah, very Woody and Soon Lee. Um can we go back he to was, He was elected president when she was graduating from college. <laughs> He at least let her finish her degree before he married her in 1886. Well, there's proprieties to maintain the politics. Grover Cleveland was a draft dodger. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were were going to say uh, Republicans criticizing the constituents who support the Democratic Party. Because that's something that we're all familiar with. And that's something that's been going on It's never been a problem again. again. Right. uh, Anti-immigration? Nobody mentions San Francisco or Philadelphia voters. Hey, Frankie, baby! President Grover, can't you call me Francis? But, Mrs. President Grover, to me you have always been cute little Frank, from when you were a lump in the tummy of my law partner's wife, to today, when you become my own wife. Speaking of my father's lumps, I can't thank you enough for claiming that you had sired his illegitimate child. Oh, I would pretend to be the daddy of a hundred little bastards, if it makes you happy, Frankie baby. Especially after your father, poor Oscar, got hit by that streetcar. Poor Oscar. What's a grouch? You certainly have a unique way of romancing a woman. Oh, but Mrs. President, do you not love it here in our remote honeymoon cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains? Blue is a very nice color, after all. The nicest. Shall we commence celebrating our marriage? 
Oh, who on earth could that be? Oh, it is probably the caviar, which the Tsar of Russia promised to send us as a wedding present. I will go get the fishy eggs and send the delivery boy away. I, uh, I'll take it from here. Oh, I, I do not mean to be rude, but who are you? And what is with all the colored lights? Don't you recognize me? I'm Stanislas Kowalski. The pole you paid to take your place in the Union Army in 1862. But, but, Mr. Kowalski, I only wanted you to fight in the war for me because war is nasty, and I did not want to get hurt. I did not intend for you to substitute for me on my honeymoon. Under the Napoleonic Code, your wife is half mine. Anyway, you ain't been to war, so you don't know how to use a weapon. I am not sure, but I think that is a very dirty joke. How on earth did you find this place, Mr. Kowalski? I have a newspaper acquaintance who told me. There's a mob of them outside. Oh, those reporters are such monsters. And not of your lovable furry variety, either. Now, you did not tell them what you were planning to do, did you? I said I was delivering a Polish sausage. Tell the truth. Ain't that right, Grover? I do not think I appreciate all this vulgarity in front of my cute little wife. Have some sympathy, Grover, dear. I'm sure this poor man has had a very difficult life. I noticed you walk with a slight limp, Mr. Kowalski. Were you injured in battle? When we attacked New Orleans, a staircase fell on me. Got a hernia. <gasps> you got a boo-boo in the war? Oh, that is terrible. I, I will tell you what. If I ask Congress to pass a law which pays a pension to veterans like you, Will you go away and not attempt to insert yourself into my wife's affairs? I've had this date for a long time, but I'll skip it to help my buddies in the 241st. Sorry I won't get to interfere with you, Mrs. Cleveland. You look like you wouldn't be bad to interfere with. Oh my, just the thought makes me blanch. No, thank you. I won't depend upon the kindness of strangers. All right, that is that. Please go away now. I do not want to ask that nice Mr. Pinkerton to drag you away kicking and screaming as if you were a labor agitator. Bye-bye! Have you any intention of keeping your pension promise? Oh, heavens no, Frank. I lied like a furry blue rug. If the government paid a pension to Union soldiers, then it would only be fair to pay a pension to Confederate soldiers, too. And that would bankrupt the entire treasury. Now the treasury was full, and then it would be empty. And I am renowned for my fiscal responsibility. I merely wanted to make sure we were alone so we could have a nice honeymoon. Now, if we could just rid ourselves of those dreadful reporters outside. Oh, do not worry, Frankie Baby. I have a plan. I am not only cute, I am sneaky, too. <clears throat> hey, guys! What do you think you are doing bothering me and my cute little... Oh, my goodness! Is that Lily Lane Tree skinny dipping in the Chattahoochee River? Oh, oh! Oh, Grover, your scheme worked. Oh, hooray! Oh. But I was going to say that it 
it's one of the other like very few issues that this campaign was actually <laughs> run on, right? That idea of reform. Let's so this is like the fourth or fifth election of reform, reform, reform. I'm guessing at this point, it's just this meaningless <laughs> buzzword to people that actually paid attention to that sort of thing in the late 19th century, right? Yeah. How's that going for you? Four presidents <laughs> later. <laughs> well, I think though, why the Republicans, if this is a, an issue, reform, 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 didn't try to do some kind of performative uh, reform or some like window dressing to sort of throw um, so the people it was a called bone. The Pendleton Civil Service Act in 1883. <laughs> Sherman Act. Yeah, the Sherman Act in 1890 was kind of decorative antitrust legislation that was like never used. Here, look, we're not in the pocket of the business interest. We're going to break them up when we feel like it. Am I right on that one, James? I think I think that's absolutely right is in that there was, you know, uh, back to the time of Grant, you know, again, we've been talking about there have been efforts from all these Republican presidents to at least appear as though they were tackling the reform issue, some of which I think was was more honest than other attempts. But I think the issue and perhaps the reason I would argue that the late 19th century presidents were so joyless was because they were running into the limits of federal policy uh, in in an era when the imagined limits of the federal government and indeed the presidency itself were, you know, much more constrained um, than they are now, um, that there just simply wasn't that much that the president alone could do about this issue when so many of the people in Congress owed their election to these various groups that were seen as corrupt and since Congress, you know, held the power of the purse. He he vetoed a hell of a lot of bills, did he not? Yes, Especially he did. in his first term. Yeah. Both as governor in New York and as president, he was known as Governor Vito, then President Vito. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in an era when the idea, supposedly the idea is reform, and I suppose we could say he also reformed by getting married, but um, um there the idea of reform was just trying to stop legislation from doing so that the government could do things. I mean, so the veto, so the, like Congress wanted to do stuff and you know, what, were, what were some of the bills? More that like who, who well, like Congress wanted to spend money and Cleveland did not. So like ah. there was a drought in Texas and Congress appropriated a hundred thousand dollars to buy seed for the farmers who had been affected and Cleveland vetoed it and said, nope, we're not going to spend that money. This is not our place to assist Texan farmers. That's up to the Texas government. That should not be the role of the federal government. This is my all time favorite Cleveland quote, And I know everyone has at least one favorite Cleveland quote. Mm -hmm. um, the people must support the government, but the government must not support the people. I think that was in his veto message on the seed bill. You know, you can, you can tell what he meant to say there, but it's unfortunate yeah. how many people took the opposite meaning. Yeah, I think we're thinking economic support, like handouts. But yeah, that does come across as rather heartless. Seed, seed, there's no need. Come on, help me finish the... <laughs> seed, seed, there's no need. 
save your money from the farmer's greed. Who knows? Ooh, there we go. <laughs> something, something, boss tweed. Right. <laughs> Not bad. Sandy, the... you're the musician in the group. You can do something with that, can't you? <laughs> So before we depart, before we depart uh, Cleveland's first term, I would, can we talk a little bit about what you know Chelsea alluded to earlier and what was becoming a problem in, in the first term and it would become a huge problem in the second term? Income disparity. There was a lot of labor unrest during the uh, during the first. Cle- there would be far more. But uh, that was the time of the Haymarket riots, and in the book that I just read, and I think it's a little bit of a stretch, someone said that the Haymarket riot is what made Amer- first made Americans aware of the great income disparity in the country. The rise of the multi, the huge corporations. Well, I mean, the Gilded Age barons would have done that. Mm-hmm. That's such a silly thing to say, because like, it made Americans aware of income disparity, which, like, of course, you know, three quarters of Americans are living through the income disparity, right? I mean, like, come on. But, um. but, those, but those poor immigrants might not know how much Grover, like, the luxury that Grover Cleveland is. Like, there's no, like, real housewives of Buffalo. Right? Like, <laughs> there never will be. <laughs> And we, we certainly can't have all of these unwashed masses get together and realize, you know, if we hung together, maybe we can actually get a few things our way against these rich SOBs. And of course, the rich, the rich SOBs knew this. And I use the term SOBs not because I'm a union man. Okay, because I am a union man. <laughs> but, um, you know, the whole flow of what happened in Haymarket from the actual event itself to the myth that came around because there were policemen that were killed. And so you had war, you know, the policemen were Irish and the, the supposed organizers were ethnics, read slot is kind of Slavic and, <laughs> and Germans, a lot of Germans and, Germans and railroad, you know, and clear injustice. Oh, and don't forget the violence. My my research was that Grover didn't have a particular opinion one way or another, which again, which actually coming from an urban area seems kind of odd. Well, if it isn't Paige Turner, my favorite historian. And if it isn't Emma Zahn, my favorite and only literary agent. Thanks for inviting me to lunch so I can pitch my new book, but isn't Sacrenu a little extravagant? A little extravagant, darling. Sacrenu is French for extravagant or green saw. Anyway, have a seat and let's figure out what to order. I've heard that the Wagyu beef tartare with Assyria of caviar is beyond divine. Wow, sounds decadent. Let me corrupt you, darling. It's the least I owe the author of Eleanor's Women, the most downloaded audiobook of all time. Just think, darling, even as we sit here downing Dom Perignon, millions of people are listening to Tony Collette pretend she's Eleanor Roosevelt having hot lesbian sex. Or affectionate letters that Mrs. Roosevelt wrote to close female friends who 
might have been lovers, but anyway, I promise you my next book will sell even without implicit girl-on-girl action. It's called Haymarket Riot. Riots. Timely. I can already see the picture of the New York Times book review. Author of Eleanor's Women explores the roots of social unrest in America. The advanced sales alone will keep us both in Jimmy Choo's for years. I can't wear high heels. I have big feet. Then have them custom made, darling. Hmm, is one appetizer enough? Maybe we can munch on some fragois while you tell me about these sexy social justice warriors. What's after the colon? The subtitle is going to be The Birth Pangs of America's Labor Movement. Birth pangs, labor, clever, and clever cells, in modest numbers at least. You know, maybe Dom is a bit pretentious for lunch. What would you say about splitting a bottle of white wine? I say, sure, I love Chardonnay. Anyway, I'll set the scene. Spring, 1886, Chicago. The world's fastest growing city is a powder keg because of tensions between factory owners and workers. There's a wildcat strike at the McCormick plant where most of the country's farm equipment is manufactured. Farm equipment? Well, who knows? Maybe farm equipment is the uh, new true crime. Keep going. This is riveting, darling. Hmm. Now that I see the menu, I'm getting a taste for scallops. Yum. So on May 4th, the leaders of the Socialist Labor Party and the Social Democratic Union organized a demonstration at the corner of Randolph and Des Plaines, an area known as the Haymarket to rally support for an eight-hour workday. An eight-hour workday, you say? Wow. Can't remember the last time I had one of those. Keep going, darling. This is so interesting. Have you ever had pheasant, darling? It tastes like chicken. I had KFC for dinner last night, but sure. Anyway, you won't believe what happens next. Someone sets off a bomb. Eight people died in the ensuing riot. Dead people. Chicago. The 1800s. Larson kind of owns that turf, thanks to Devil in the White City, where the victims at least beautiful, vulnerable young women. Well, no. Seven of them were actually police officers. That might appeal to the Blue Lives Matter crowd, but I'm not sure I have the resources to buy the first 50,000 copies. Maybe we can split a salad. Are you saying I should be watching my weight? We'll both be losing weight soon enough. Anyway, what happens next, darling? I can't tell you how excited I am. The bomber was never found, but the state arrested the rally organizers. Three of them were even executed. Executed. Not bad. So were any of the convicts sympathetic? Gay, Hispanic, Black? Well, no. As far as I know, they were all heterosexual, and some were white enough to be German. But Albert Parsons' wife Lucy was a freed slave, if that helps. It might help about the price of bluefish tuna, darling, if there's an evil Republican president threatening to send in the National Guard. Sorry to disappoint you, but Grover Cleveland was a Democrat. 
In the 19th century, Democrats were openly racist and anti-immigrant, and Republicans believed in civil rights. Wow, interesting. So this Haymarket riot has absolutely no connection to modern politics. Hmm. I'm not that hungry all of a sudden. Maybe we should just have drinks. But Grover Cleveland's signature issue was cutting tariffs. By cutting tariffs, he reduced workers' wages, which led to labor unrest, which then led to... Page, dear, this sounds like a book that a small academic press might forward you an Amazon gift card to use for their press publications. Maybe we can get a sandwich to go and finish up this meeting at a, a Starbucks. I think there's one in your neighborhood in Brooklyn, right next to that footlocker. So what do you say? I say one of the accused, Albert Spees, married a prison groupie, a beautiful young socialite named Nina Van Zandt. Can we make her an heiress? I'm sure she inherited something. Anyway, Canute H. Matson, Cook County's heartless sheriff, stood in the way of their young love by denying them conjugal visits. He single-handedly tried to stop Haymarket Fever. Haymarket Fever! Love among the riots. Magnificent, darling. Any hot love letters? No, but there were some sexy telegrams. Waiter, caviar, urgent, stop. Rover seemed to see himself in his first term. He would go violently, like literally violently pro-management, pro-industry in his second term. I feel like he considered himself like a neutral arbiter between industry and labor during his first term. So there was no need to send the troops to Chicago in 1886, although he'd see an overweening need to send him to the, you know, send them to Chicago in Ham and Hammond, Indiana with its governor, with its mayor, Patrick Riley, in 1894. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> I wonder, and, and I don't know this, but I wonder if maybe Cleveland doesn't send in federal troops because he doesn't want to undermine a Democratic mayor's power. Someone in his own uh, party? I don't know. He also, in, during the Pullman strike, he had an attorney general who was the former, who was former corporate counsel for the railroads. Well, the railroads are national. Reapers are just local. Ah, true. There you go. Although Reapers will come for us all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we shouldn't fear the Reapers, Paul. <laughs> I don't. And I don't fear the wind. Just like the wind of the sun of the rain. Especially if we give them more cowbell. Again, there is that weirdness of running three times and winning three times, although... His first election came to, he basically his first election came down to New York State, which he won by 1,200 votes. That's pretty close. Pretty rather, darn close. Rather tight. Uh, now he did what? Now he now the electoral college in the first the first campaign was a lot bigger, and maybe the, again New York was the was the prize in that era. Um, but he's not, I mean, so, so he gets, so he gets elected kind of on the skin of his teeth in some ways. 
maybe doesn't have a lot of personal charm attached to him, at least through the general public, if they think of him at all. He vetoes seeds and farmers. And veterans. And pensions. And pensions. Gosh, how could he? He sure seemed set up to get reelected. Was the, he's the president of morality, remember? Mm-hmm. So we're starting to set up the election of 1890, 1888. Mm-hmm. And uh, Benjamin Harrison, where we, uh, and I don't know if it'll be just the discussion of the Harrison pregnant pregnancy, the Harrison presidency. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this will be a discussion of the Harrison presidency or an interregnum into the, <laughs> the second Cleveland presidency. But we'll come back to Grover Cleveland one episode from now, along with more about the Gilded Age, more about violence in the labor movement, and more about weird, obscure presidents. By going to another president that's weird and obscure and had some weird labor things going on in between and also went into the Gilded Age. And the last president with really cool facial hair. It's true. Benjamin Harrison, next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tony Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClure. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit's fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.